Hello, I'm Derek Kanijo and welcome back to my podcast. It's been a while and I hope all of you are doing well. I've been wanting to make this episode for a long time, so I'm really excited. Before we begin, please go to Google or eBay and type in the words Beanie Babies because that is what we're going to be talking about today. A few years ago, I read a book called The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, the amazing story of how America lost its mind over a plush toy and the eccentric genius behind it by Zach Bizonette. During this episode, I will be quoting passages from the book. The book tells the story of Ty Warner and how his creation, The Beanie Babies, became an object of speculation in the US in the late 90s. To understand Beanie Babies, we, fir- we first must understand the man behind it, Ty Warner, and that is where I will begin our story. Ty Warner started his career as a toy salesman for a company called Dakin. Dakin was founded in 1955 and by the late 70s, it was selling close to 70 million toys per year and Ty was the company's star salesman. But by 1980, Ty was getting increasingly frustrated and was eventually fired from Dakin for pitching his own stuffed animals to the same accounts he was selling Dakin's products to. So in 1986, Ty decided to start his own plush toy company called Ty. To understand how crazy of an idea this was, here's what the author had to say. The idea of starting a plush company in the early 80s was no one's idea of smart. It was a stagnant industry, 50 years past its prime, with no growth in sight. Ty Warner might have brought a level of perfectionism to it that no one else did, but it seemed unlikely that could compensate for the business's horrible economics. By this time, Ty had already spent 15 years in the toy business and he was obsessed with it. The author writes, He carefully inspected the fabrics, tags and stitching, and he dissected them in his office to learn how they were made. When he went to the factories in Asia, his carry-on bag often contained competitors' products. The animals and desire to make them softer, cuter and better consumed every part of Warner's life. Ty also made the decision not to sell his stuffed animals to discounters and opted to sell only to mom and pop toy stores and gift shops. But what really caused the Beanie Baby bubble to take off was Ty's strange approach to product development. While other retailers would keep their best sellers in their lineup for years, Ty would change his product mix more frequently and always discontinue old products. By 1995, Ty started marketing his $5 stuffed animals as collectibles. And then in order to create artificial scarcity, he told the retailers that certain pieces had been retired. This strategy made the earlier versions of his products seem more rare and valuable. By 1996, word started to spread that you could buy Beanie Babies for $5 and then flip them for two to five times on the secondary market. Here's how the author described it in his book. And so it was with Beanie Babies. Incredible stories about vast riches being made predictions about rising prices, then books and magazines extolling their investment merits circulated. Pre-teens were making millions with beanie trading websites, soccer moms were accumulating collections that would cover the cost of college. Their stories might not have started out as accurate ones, 
but the momentum they created sometimes helped them become true. The author then goes on to explain how the rise of the internet and eBay helped fuel the bubble. eBay brought millions of people into the world of auctions for the first time. And the combination of the newness of the internet and the newness of bidding probably contributed to irrationality. People who had collections online, who had collections could go online and see that they were in the money, which made stocking up on more retail price beanies an easy decision. End of quote. If you are an astute student of psychology, you will see that there are two powerful forces acting in the same direction. First, we have scarcity caused by retiring the beanie babies. And second, we have social proof created by media stories and stories of people reselling the toys on eBay for handsome profits. To illustrate how crazy things got, in 1998, at the peak of the bubble, the company generated sales of $1.4 billion and Ty became a billionaire and the richest man in the American toy industry. On eBay, people were selling their Beanie Babies for over $1,000, with some models selling for over $5,000. And remember, just three short years ago, these stuffed animals were being sold in gift shops for $5. Eventually, the price of Beanie Babies collapsed and the mania ended. The author writes, By 1999, every single person who could become a Beanie Baby collector already was one. With no prospects for an influx of increased demand, prices stagnated because there was nothing else for them to do. Once casual collectors could no longer count on quick price appreciation on retired pieces, they dropped out. And then prices fell as the market contracted, driving out still more collectors. The lack of continued growth helped the public come to its senses, slowly at first and then suddenly. Like the tulip bulb from Holland, for a brief period, Beanie Babies captured the public's imagination and became an object of speculation. To learn more, I highly recommend reading Zach's book. I now want to share with you seven lessons that I took away from the Beanie Baby bubble. Lesson 1. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. In 1902, the word teddy bear entered the lexicon for the first time. In 1906, there was a speculative mania in teddy bears. 90 years later, in 1996, we saw the craze in Beanie Babies. So history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. Lesson 2. If you want to encourage people to gamble and speculate, you make the cost of entry really low and you promise big rewards without mentioning how bad the odds really are. In the case of Beanie Babies, the cost of entry was only $5, so it was accessible to everyone. And something similar happened a few years ago with cryptocurrencies. The promoters were essentially telling people that with very little money, that they too could get started and make fantastic money. This is why I am not a fan of crypto trading, lottery tickets, and slot machines. They lure people in with a low cost of entry and a promise of big rewards, without ever mentioning the horrible odds. Lesson 3. It is easier to bid up the price of objects that have no income stream attached. It is easier to bid up the price of objects such as tulips, beanie babies and Pokemon cards 
to astronomical, astronomical heights than it is to bid up the price of an apartment building that produces rental income. When there is no anchor or easy way to calculate the intrinsic worth of the object, the sky is the limit in terms of what prices can do. Lesson 4. It is easier to bid up the price of things that have no real and immediate use in the economy. Again, objects such as tulips, beanie babies and Pokemon cards are not used in the real economy the same way that oil and copper are. Lesson 5. Just because something has a bid or a price attached to it, or because it can be traded on a website, it doesn't mean that it is intrinsically valuable. The price of these objects depend on what somebody else is willing to pay for it, and that is dangerous territory. Buying something because you think the other fellow is going to pay more for it is not investing. Lesson 6. The idea of creating something out of nothing and then packaging it to sell it as an investment is a really old concept and will forever be with us. Lesson 7. You can have speculation and excess in multiple things at once. In the 80s, both the Japanese stock market and the real estate market were inflated. In the 90s, the craze in Beanie Babies happened in parallel with the dot-com bubble. In 2020-2021, the speculation in meme stocks and SPACs were happening at the same time. I want to urge my listeners to pick up one of the most useful books I have ever read. It is called A Short History of Financial Euphoria by John Kenneth Galbraith. I first read it in I first read it in 2015 and reread it again this year. It's fantastic and I enjoyed it much more the second time. The book discusses speculative episodes of the past, the common themes and how quickly speculative episodes are forgotten. Lastly, I recently read an excellent book about the Northern Pacific corner of 1901. Do let me know if you want to hear me talk about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the follow button on your podcast app and rate the show five stars. Thank you so much for listening. That's all for today. Until next time.